Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks for tuning in to the French Studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm Annie Desisor, and today it is my great pleasure to speak with Dr. Brett Brem about his first book, Clydophonic Modernity, Transatlantic Sound, Technology, and Literature, published at Fordham University Press in 2023. Hi, Brett. Welcome, and thanks for joining me today. Hi, Annie. Thanks so much. Uh, I'm delighted to be here, really. Thank you for inviting me. Well, thank you. Um, To start us off, I'd just like to give you a chance to tell listeners a little bit about yourself and your background, anything you'd like to share, and um, perhaps what led you to study French literature and and French studies. Sure, sure. It'd be my pleasure. Um, uh, I I come from a background in in music, actually, so... um, um, that was one thing that uh, led me to this particular topic, and um, uh, I guess we were just talking a little bit about Paris before we started this interview, but uh, led me to uh, to spend some time in Paris uh, playing in some jazz clubs. I, play, I played piano since I was, I think, maybe nine or ten years old, and um, still continue to play, not as much as uh, I would like, but I really really enjoy it when I can. And the uh, times when I find a chance to uh, sit in on a, a jazz jam session in Paris, it's really uh, a true pleasure. So um, that's something that I think has animated my my research, my, my studies in, in French. I'm really interested in sort of the connections, musical connections between the U.S. and France. Um, haven't published yet on that and sort of the history of jazz between uh, France and the U.S., but something I might be interested in doing uh, down the line. But um, my experience with with French studies um, started in high school, had some really, really wonderful teachers in high school um, and um, been in college as well. I continued studying French and uh, had the opportunity to teach English, actually, in fact, um, in Paris or just outside Paris the year after I graduated from undergrad. So I said said to myself, I I don't want to lose this connection. I don't want to lose the connection with the language, with the city, with the culture, um, music, the literature, philosophy, everything. So um, I I started studying... um, more, more literature, more, more uh, actually some art history for a while. And uh, here I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, you mentioned, I mean, I was going to ask kind of the origins of this particular project and you mentioned music, but you're also evoking literature and art history. I mean, all this is coming out in all, all these are important things that you study in your book, um, of course. So, so would you say that the kind of getting to the origin of this project, it's an interest in music, but kind of intellectually, did it originate with one author in particular? Um, you, you talk about um, Charles Croix, uh, Baudelaire, Whitman, Poe, Nina de Villard, um, but also, as we'll discuss, the kind of history, early history or prehistory of technological developments in audiovisual reproduction. So how did this kind of all come together as you were conceiving of the book in in its early stages. Right, right. Um, It's, uh, I think in terms of a single author, um, I mean, I studied uh, comparative literature uh, for my, uh, for my doctorate. And many of our courses included readings um, from Walter Benjamin. So I, uh, I believe it was it was potentially an essay that I wrote on Benjamin and uh, the idea of acoustics and sound. And if we could um, think about some of Benjamin's ideas from a, a sort of an acoustical perspective. And the professor said, um, you know, this is, this is a really intriguing angle because there's certainly so many things that can be said about visual culture, visual studies. But at this point, the acoustic really remains um, wide open in ways. 
Um, so it's sort of, I, I think, I mean, I was coming at that initial turn to the acoustic from music. Uh, I was still playing a lot of music at, the, at that time, uh, a lot of piano and um, thinking about music in relation to painting and literature. And so I think it was that, that desire to sort of bridge, you know, um, different disciplines, different art forms together um, that led me to think about, well, okay, you know, could we think about some of Benjamin's ideas uh, from an acoustical standpoint? Um, and from there, I discovered um, various other authors, and it was thanks to uh, another professor of mine in graduate school um, that I that I discovered Charles Crow. Uh, that's C R O S. Some people uh, mistakenly hear Cheryl Crow, and <laughs> very different story. If I was, but maybe that would be interesting. That would be a different book, so, but uh, uh, yeah, you know, American <laughs> pronouncing Charles Crow. You know, Charles Charles Crow. I've, I've I've even heard different pronunciations in in parts of France and the um, southern regions. There's a cross. I think that cross. Um, yeah, yeah, I wondered yeah. if the S was silent uh, or yeah. not. Yeah, <laughs> so. Um, it was the suggestion of, of one of my um, dissertation, you know, committee members that, you know, well, who's the, who, who's this, you know, maybe, we, you know, look at this, this guy, Charles Cole, and see if there's something there, because he had heard, you know, by, you know, just his reputation that he was involved with the invention of the phonograph or sort of a almost invention. His own um, paleophone was a, a dreamed of device that he um uh, we think never actually got to build, or at least there's no evidence that he actually built the machine. But um, interestingly, I, I looked at him initially and discovered some stories that, okay, yes, this definitely touches on um, audiovisual machines and acoustics. And there's certainly some things I can say, but I didn't know how far it could take me. Um, I didn't know if I would devote, you know, even an entire chapter to him. And he's turned out to be the first chapter of the book. Um, and I think it was the turn to some of his scientific papers, um, and to looking at his poetry in different ways that I discovered, oh, wait a minute, there is a whole, um, you know, field of possibilities here for, for thinking about um, his writings from this kind of angle. And I discovered, wow, there's, there's, there's actually a whole lot that I could say, certainly a chapter, if not an entire book. Um, so that was, that was I'd, I'd have to say, one of the, the real thrilling moments of the research for me was when I sort of came to that realization that... Um, there's so much um, in the material there, um, and not just you know one particular particular story where he'll explicitly reference the phonograph or you know sound recording, but so many other uh, elements. So um, yeah, those those are sort of some of the um, uh, origins of the project. I had I had something of a blueprint, and he was he was in there in the beginning, and then it expanded. Poe was not in there in the beginning for. I have posed my my second chapter. So for the the transatlantic angle, uh, that was something um, you know interesting in terms of how research can proceed. You know, you you start off with an idea of a shape of the book, a shape of your research, and you discover other authors and other connections. And so um, I often tell my students, you know, it, it's good to have a blueprint to start with or some some idea, but just go into it knowing that, you know, things can change and you're going to be, be open to those possibilities. So I was, I was glad that I was open to those possibilities and that, that Poe found his way, uh, his way into the book because I, I enjoyed writing that chapter. Yeah, me too. And I, I enjoyed reading it as someone who loved reading Poe, um, you know, in high school and just, you know, seeing and thinking about it kind of challenged my way of thinking about him realizing, right, sound sound is everywhere uh in this um so i really like how you how you brought that out but i wanted to return um briefly to you were talking about Cole and his his almost invention or you know his idea of the invention of the paleophone and you also talk in the beginning of your introduction about um the french inventor uh edouard leon scott de martinville who invented an early recording device, the phonograph, if I'm pronouncing yes, it correctly, yep. mm -hmm. um, before, um, almost two decades before Thomas Edison invented the phonograph. So this, these are just two examples of the many kind of um, 
earlier proto-technologies that you mentioned throughout your book, and I learned all kinds of new things. Um, there's a lot more of these technologies than I realized um, after having read your book. So I'm wondering if you could talk about kind of your choice to focus on these, one, one could call them failed technologies that have been bought out by more successful technologies, but really you talk about proto-technologies and thinking about how studying them helped you think about how people were thinking about sound in different ways or, or kind of how, why did you choose to kind of focus on these technologies in your book or as a frame? Right. The, the, the prehistory we could say, um, I think, uh, I mean, immediately off the bat, I think that a lot of the scholarship tended to look at the moment of invention and the decades immediately following, which is certainly, um, of vital importance for for um, for the history, so we're we're talking about the you know the 19th century saw the invention of photography, um, saw the invention of mechanical sound recording. Um, we could call it phonography. Uh, phonograph was the I guess the first term widely used to describe this um, phenomenon. Um, we saw the invention of the telephone just uh, roughly a year before the phonograph and um, cinema towards the end of the century, roughly 1895 with the Lumiere brothers. Um, so uh, all these inventions, there's certainly uh, sea shifts in the landscape of media technologies um, of the era. Um, but I got at some point very interested in thinking about, well, what what led up to these moments? What's the, what's the prehistory? And um, there certainly has been important and um, vital work done in that area. Um, a touchstone for a lot of sound study scholars is Jonathan Stern's The Audible Past. Um, and that was certainly an inspiration for me. I looked, I decided I wanted to look more closely at the literary prehistory. Um, certainly also the science side of things, but where they intersected, that was really important for me. Um, what did people think um, these inventions could do and how were they used as touchstones? So earlier inventions used as touchstones for later ones. Um, and, um, that got me to thinking about, um, again, Charles Coe, um, who worked not only on sound recording, but also on color photography. Um, I'm happy that I was able to get at least, I think one, one, if not two of his early experiments in color photography, uh, in my book. Um, uh, so yeah, worked really hard for those illustrations. <laughs> yeah, I imagined because they were, you know, for a book about sound, but of course it's not just about sound, but there's so many striking visuals, um, like the illustrations and also from not just that time period, the 19th century, but more modern works as well. Um, it's really yeah, there's a lot of beautiful. No, thank you, in the thank book. you. Yeah, um, it was. I, I I enjoyed them. You know, flipping through, and you know, still think I. Oh, there's there's more I'd like to write about these visuals and ways. But um, getting back to the the question of why the why the prehistory, uh, another another touchstone throughout the book that that speaks to both the visual and the acoustic side is the example of the acoustic daguerreotype. Um, and this was a phrase that came from the famous, I guess you could call him a giant of 19th century photography, uh, Felix Nadar. Um, and he speculated that, you know, in the future, there could be um, something like an acoustic daguerreotype. We could do for sound what we've done with light and photography. Um, and... I believe as well the the, the device that you mentioned, um, Edward Leon Scott de Martinville, uh, his phonograph. Um, he uses a similar analogy when he's describing his device. Um, so that was both a touchstone for me throughout the book uh, in thinking about how the acoustic and the visual interact, and also something that I wanted to learn more about. So I really I had to go digging through Nadar's writings because it was not easy to find uh, the two references. There was, a, um, I think, a, a small error in one of the uh, citations that I had about it. So <laughs> I really had to go digging for, um, uh, you know, in different, you know, publications until I could find specifically what he was saying. So no, I didn't want to get it secondhand. I, I knew if that was an important idea for me, I had to go to the source. Um, but 
I guess also coming back to the origins of the project, uh, I guess when I started graduate school, like it was in 2007, 2008, um, I think it was the spring of that year um, when uh, there was this discovery that um, researchers could um, make some of these recordings that Edouard Léon Scott and Martin Ville had made in the 1850s, late 1850s, early 1860s, make them sound again, make them audible. Um, and um, previously, no one had heard back that far in time. Um, it was a group, I think it was led by um, Patrick Feaster, um, uh, who was one of the researchers, a number of other um, physicists and um, researchers working in this area of um, uh, what some people have call, called archaeophony or a certain archaeology of sound. Uh, so that was certainly um, in the sort of constellation of, of elements that, were, that was inspiring me, uh, getting me to think about um, moments other than the sort of eureka or aha moments of invention. You know, what, what were the devices that led up to these moments? And maybe we don't want to call them dead ends, but the the movements or the, the devices that um, had a certain purpose but didn't quite win out over the others. So I talk about it in my conclusion, but it's it's an effort to think about um, these histor- historical moments not entirely dominated by one medium or one um, one essential technology. So are we are we moving into the the age of artificial intelligence now? Is this the AI moment? Um, you know, what will people think twenty years from now about? this moment that we're moving into. And we talk about the age of Edison, the, you know, the electric light bulb, the age of the phonograph, um, information age, all of these ages. Um, I think it's, it's helpful to use those terms, but also we need to be critical of them and think, um, think, you know, what other, um, what other forces were at play? What other imaginaries? Um, and for me, importantly, where did where did literature, where did the visual arts, where did music, where did where did all those discourses enter into connection with with these discoveries, these inventions? Right. Exactly. No, I th- I th- thought it was a really fascinating way to approach these questions because you're not. You know, it's 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 not a project that's looking at oh, let's look at the influence of this new technology on how people are writing, or you know what, you know, drawing a direct connection point A to point B. It's really you point really to more about how authors are envisioning, imagining possibilities, thinking about sound in new ways um, that are anticipating these technologies or that are engaging with the implications of these technologies for human consciousness um, and a lot of really deep questions that these authors are grappling with already. So I really appreciated that approach. It was, it was very fascinating to read. And in, um, in going back to that, um, that question of what these technologies or, or, or how they're being imagined and how their uses might be imagined um, and, you mentioned, oh yeah, you mentioned with with the with the Scott de Martinville, the kind of using technology to go back and to make something sound that had been previously, um, you know, had never been heard before. Which is, you know, and you reference in your book that first sounds firstsounds.org, I think is or dot com is the we website where you can to, listen to um, it. Some of these samples, you know, of it's just they're mind-boggling it's just extraordinary to listen back that far um at firstsounds.org you can listen to a lot of these early early earliest of recordings yeah but so, so. yeah and and i so so i went and you know as i was reading i went and listened and it was to be honest very kind of unsettling like very eerie and creepy almost um and but and this is something that comes up in your book how authors are thinking about sound in these ways, kind of communicating with, you know, you, you mentioned um, Jonathan Stern in the Audible Pass, and he makes this case that the invention of the, pheno- uh, the phonograph was linked to this Victoria era, era obsession um, with, with death and culture of death, and that sound reproduction technology was a way to preserve and listen to the voices of the dead. And so I'm wondering how, uh, you know, in your book, as you're 
you know, you mentioned Poe. I mean, there's a lot to say there, I think, but with other authors as well, how are they making connections between sound reproduction or imagining the possibilities of, of sound reproduction, preservation, and then communicating with voices from beyond, whether from the past or, you know, even with Ko, he's imagining interstellar communication in a futuristic setting. So yeah, how how are authors, I guess, thinking about kind of the unsettling kind of eerie aspects of sound or if you would say that they are conceiving them of them in these ways? Sure, sure. I I think uh, certainly the unsettling would would describe it well. Um, With with Poe, I would say unnerving. Uh, There was a certain language and literary language of nerves as sort of these organic networks and how sound and uh, recorded sound could be um, threatening or kind of shock. We think about um, Walter Benjamin again, thinking about urban life and the urban shock in the 19th century. Um, But um, to think about um, just how unsettling, how unnerving, you know, it is for our experience to listen back that far in time, like as if we shouldn't be able to, as if, I don't know, just like, no, like uh, that's a silent era. Um, think about a silent era of film, silent era of history. And no, we shouldn't be able to listen back that far in time. And at the same time for uh, writers and artists, you know, photographers like Nadar back then thinking about, um, uh, what would that experience be like in the future? Would it be, would it be marvelous or would it be scary? Um, and there was a very real fear of photography uh, back at the time. And this very famous story of um, that, again, Nadar relates of, of Balzac and the theory of specters and then the idea that uh, every time you were photographed, it would take away a thin layer of your body. Uh, and uh, there's a story I write about in the introduction of the book about, you know, this taken to a kind of literal extreme where the, the sitter is, is obliterated. His body is obliterated, but his voice remains. So there is a kind of horror to that. The story itself is mostly comical. I think I write it as, you know, it's, it's really a charming story, but there's a, there's a fear animating it. There's a horror to thinking about voices that persist, like the listening to the dead, preserving the dead in their, with their voices in a way. Um, at the same time, uh, I was aware of that going into the project and, and the research, and I thought, okay, I, I want to get, you know, deeper into that. And, and with Poe, I certainly found... Um, that that was a, a critical element that he was thinking about um, acoustics recording as a, as a kind of unnerving uh, area, um, something that was related to death and the macabre, as we would expect with Poe. Um, and then I got to, to um, Crow, the, the, the French inventor of, of sound recording or French almost inventor, and he had some different takes on it. I mean, he thought about... Um, you know, preserving beloved voices. So in one of his poems, in, Inscription, um, it's sort of an homage to his various inventions. He thinks about um, preserving beloved voices for the future, um, sort of, you know, um, uh, you know, stopping time in a way. Uh, so, so it wasn't so much a, for him, not always a fascination with death, but thinking about... Um, uh, love, memory. There's another story I write about where he mentioned the interstellar side and these crows just wonderful and wild in so many ways. I mean, he dreamed about, you know, interplanetary, you know, communication. There's an article about, um, you know, his attempt to maybe speak Martian or speak, develop an interplanetary language. It almost sounds like something like digital code ones and zeros or something. He's got these immense mirrors, but in this, this very, you know, um, science fiction type short story, he talks about, um, communication with Venus and a scientist on Venus and, you know, what these, um, communications would be, the sound recordings would be like. And it was sort of sound recording in the spirit of scientific research and, um, you know, romantic encounters and sort of, uh, kind of, um, um, communication at a distance that, you know, we're all so accustomed to today. That's, you know, 
totally mundane, but then was dreamed of as a kind of magical thing. Um, the last thing I might say on that is when I finally got to um, Nadar's, I think it was his first writing about the idea of the acoustic daguerreotype. Um, he also had a very interesting political perspective on it, thinking about, uh, okay, the newspapers are so biased, we're getting things secondhand, wouldn't it be remarkable if we could have an audio transcript of, you know, parliamentary debate of, you know, this political debate that we're getting secondhand. And it was a kind of dream of objectivity in some way. Um, so I certainly think the fascination with death and hearing voices of the dead, um, you know, resonated um, throughout the century and throughout a lot of these writers. But there were certainly um, other frames of reference, other other lenses that um, writers at the time put on it. Uh, and I, I was I was thrilled and you know fascinated to discover these lenses that it was it was death and uh, other ways. Yeah, no, it's interesting what you say about Nadar and this kind of dream of objectivity that you, that you say that, um, you know, <laughs> so, so interesting for us to talk about this today where we can have recordings, right, of absolutely everything. And yet it seems like the truth is, is even harder to establish perhaps. Be- right. And, you know, of course, AI is a whole nother question that gets roped in there. But you were saying how authors have different lenses to understand and interpret these these technologies or imagine their possibilities. And um, Baudelaire is one of the the your your main interlocutors and he um it seems that he is one of the figures in your book that is really i mean interested in these questions of sound uh in, intrigued by these questions of of possible sound reproduction but also very skeptical of them and he was famously very skeptical and critical of photography um and though he seems to be more um interested in the possibility of that you talk about the 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 pre cinematic or the the proto uh, phonographic uh, lens that that Baudelaire kind of um, explores. Um, so could you maybe unpack how um, different authors have different perspectives on this idea of how these technological advancements are leading to some kind of progress um, and perhaps how their work is imagining um, a dark side of technology or um, or articulating anxieties around these technologies. Mm, right, right. Um, certainly anxieties, certainly on the part of, of Baudelaire. And he was, uh, as, as, um, has been known for a while, uh, skeptical would, would put it, you know, mildly about photography and sort of, um, I think I, the way I, I might've put it was a sort of infringement on the domain of high art that, um, uh, it would, it would take over in a way. And it was too much precision. It was too much, you know, in a way, maybe objectivity, um, that photography of the day didn't have, uh, the kind of, um, artistry that you might find with a drawing or a print. Um, and it was kind of, um, uh, a little nasty of him to be doing this, even as he's good friends with, with Nadar. So um, that anxiety that I guess it would take over, that the, the public was, um, and I love this analogy that he draws, uh, was like, um, uh, in, in French, comme un seul narcisse, and I translate it as like um, uh, a singular narcissus or one narcissus at once. Um, drawn to um, photography or the stereoscope, which, which, which used photography as well. So I, I think just the direction um, that um, technology and the arts uh, was going in, that, um, that, was, that was a great fear of him. I think in some ways maybe it's a little overblown, the hostility, because you look more closely at his, um, his longest essay on photography, and he does praise photography in ways. He says it should be used for preservation. You know, the books, um, you know, archives that could be crumbling that we could lose, if we can use photography in that way, that would be wonderful. You know, it's um, so he, he did see uses for it. Um, and I think the hostility, um, he probably that that was probably very much um, sincere 
I think, but um, at least you know, the times I read the essay, I said, well, you know, is he getting a little, a little carried away? Is, is this to attract readers in part? In contrast, and this is where I found, you know, reading Baudelaire with Crow, um, which I believe hasn't been done too, too often, or at least not necessarily on the, on the question of photography, um, Crow also maintained, a, I'd say, a healthy skepticism, you know, certain pessimism as well, certainly towards the end of his life um, about the idea of progress, progress of modern society, high capitalism, um, technological inventions but at the same time he had a, he had a certain hope and and one of his origins for developing the technology was his experience teaching deaf students when he was younger he taught he taught the deaf and um so one story goes is that he had the idea that well maybe we can develop a device that um will have a certain amount of spoken phrases in it that the deaf can use to go about their everyday lives. And maybe that can facilitate um, communication between um, different different cultures, different worlds, even different planets, even with interplanetary ideas. Um, so, you know, that was some of the wonder. And, um, you know, he thought even of, and what if it was really small? He had an idea for, you know, a pocket-sized phonograph, like right after Edison developed his. And it, it makes me think of, um, I was I was listening to a podcast a few months ago, interview with a film director, and the question was put to the director, well, what do you think about, you know, cameras after they became really small? You had handheld cameras, and what's the historical importance of that? And this director cited, well, you know, two possibilities or two developments that are really important for something that's portable. And this was Crow's vision for these technologies that they could become more accessible, more portable. Um, and so for, for film with a handheld camera, um, you have the political context again, whereas people could film things without necessarily being um, afraid of, you know, uh, the authority swooping in. You could you could film certain events uh, and certain things with something that was handheld that you could sort of hide away. And the other um, other development that I was totally intrigued by that I never would have thought of was um, children. You could film children more easily, uh, and it ties back to the story that I write about in the introduction to my book about this this great fear of photography in the nineteenth century. You know that people people were were scared of getting in front of, in front of a giant machine. You know what would it do to me? Um, and so um, I'm not sure exactly when this happened in the history of cinema and you know handheld cameras, but if you had something that was handheld and small, children would act more normally. They would behave, you know, in a way that um, was more natural, and you could you could get a vision of of life that you wouldn't have otherwise. Um, and so, um, you know, that that that's that's a pot that's opening up a possibility. It's opening up knowledge. It's maybe not necessarily optimism, but um, you know, Crow didn't necessarily speak about you know uh, portability and uh, you know visions of the lives of children or, or the political context so much in that way. But he certainly did think about you know beyond anxiety. He thought about possibilities and what these devices could reveal, how they could contribute to you know knowledge, you know scientific knowledge, but also to the arts. Right. Yeah. And certainly communicating with. With you know, thinking about his work with with deaf children, communicating with people that other opening channels of communication that otherwise wouldn't exist, right? Um, it's another way of thinking about that. Um, an, another thing that strikes me about your book is that it really is. I mean, to sort of historically um, contextualize it, you you make the case in your introduction about the value, maybe even the necessity of studying sound in the 19th century, which kind of in a lot of scholarship, there's been a lot done about visual culture. And certainly there's a lot to be said between painting and, and you know, impressionism and modern art and, and, and architecture and the panopticon and spectacle. I mean, there's been so much done, but you're really looking at, at the sonic. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, what do you think how do you con contextualize your study of sound and acoustic in this particular historical moment? Um, 
what do you think is happening in the 19th century in Paris, but also in the U.S.? Because you're talking about New York, um, that makes it such an interesting or important time to study sound or to consider sound. And you know, how is that tied in? It seems to me that it's tied in with kind of the development and the rapid changes in urban space and and city life. Um, but I'm curious about your thoughts about about Cer- that. Certainly, um, uh, I guess it's a. It's something of an obsession of mine of uh, public public transportation, um, and if I had to, you know, put my finger on an example from the 19th century now, off the, you know, off the top of my head, but I, I write about it in the book, um, is the omnibus um, development, uh, both in Paris and in New York in the 19th century, saw massive developments in public transportation with omnibus routes. Um, and, um, uh, I can't, re- I can't recall the figures, but, um, you know, the, you know, suffice to say it was, you know, in the, in the, in the thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who were not really circulating in their neighborhoods and then were suddenly, you know, seeing other parts of the city. And so this desire to circulate and, uh, at a certain point I thought about, well, what's the acoustic dimension of that? And you think about, um, as, as you were mentioning, you know, the, the visual side of things um, in Paris and, and with Baudelaire, there's this famous glimpse of a, of a woman passing by, one of, one of Baudelaire's famous poems to, to a woman passing by, out in passant. Uh, so there's the glimpse, there's the exchange of glances. Um, Friedrich Engels writes about this in terms of people who are suddenly confronted with looking at strangers in the situation of public transit, you know, on something like the omnibus. And what is that, that anxiety about? What is that experience like to, to look at other people? And so, um, you know, scholars started to ask, you know, well, what about hearing other people? What about conversations overheard in the street? Um, and, um, again, I, I was just reading, um, you know, I'd come back to some more, more recent, um, articles, uh, an article in the New York Times yesterday about scientific studies of noise, you know, mostly in urban spaces, you know, things like trains going overhead and, you know, unfortunately the, the damage it can do to our health, uh, sustained shock of noise. And this is something that, you know, scientists are, are getting more and more interested in now. And this was a question I examined in the book in terms of, um, you know, that experience of riding the omnibus through the city. Uh, and so, uh, you know, a, a strong point of contrast that I discovered, you know, this was a comparative work between, you know, thinking about Baudelaire and Whitman. Um, Baudelaire has a poem where he um, describes, I think, you know, women waiting on the side of the street, waiting for the omnibus, and they're, they're trembling with the, the rolling cacophony of the omnibus. And it, it's, it's, it's represented as something that is you know, damaging and, and a, certainly a shock in ways. Um, and um, again, it might be you know, a little exaggerated, but um, there was certainly noise, noise in in the cities, you know, back then. And Whitman takes a very different perspective on it. And he, um, he thought about that noise as a kind of immersive space for him to declaim poetry. And he talked about how he would uh, recite passages from Shakespeare while riding the omnibuses up Broadway in New York. Um, and so for him, it was a kind of, um, you know, more a model for how big and how varied um, his poetry could be, his voice could become, um, his song, the kinds of uh, sources for his singing, I, I think. Um, so uh, I think, um, yeah, if I had to pit them against each other in terms of, of thinking about what was the, um, uh, what was the, the, the decibel level, I guess, like, and what they did with those decibels, um, it was a kind of uh, moment for, uh, Baudelaire to think about the kind of damage and um, something maybe not altogether desired. Whereas Whitman thought, look at look at what what I can do with this. I'm going to respond in kind and I'm going to take it into places people haven't taken it before. Um, so one one way you could think of it is a, is a kind of ri- noise as a rival, uh, but noise as a model in a way. What could it do to poetry, and how how could it be brought into poetry in a way. Right. 
Yeah, no, it's interesting because you mentioned talking about the urban space. It struck me as I was reading your book that the late these late 19th century texts you know, were written over 100 years before sound studies as a discipline really emerged in the 60s and 70s. And I'm thinking notably of R. Murray Schaefer's work, The Soundscape, where he identifies, you know, that that the dangers of urban sound, um, noise pollution, and and these ideas. So I don't know. It makes me think that maybe, and of course today, uh, there's even more to say about these questions. Um, so there's definitely something there. I think you know that's linked to sort of the sensorial experience of sound and the sounds of modernity. And it seems like whether like whatever time period it is, these questions are kind of repeating themselves in these around like are sounds dangerous or unhealthy um, somehow are how do how do we grapple with kind of the the lives that they have that are beyond our control in in some way or the impact that they have on on, hu- on human life um seems like they're very much grappling with these questions that are still very right yeah and i was just thinking yesterday that you know for you know the origin of soundscape at least as a term with armory schaefer was you know grappling with the idea of noise pollution you know um, certainly i mean i think about sound and soundscapes in other ways but that was that was definitely there and that was something that was on the minds of writers and scientists um artists you know, in the 19th century. I found um, an obscure composer, and I, I write a little bit about him in my introduction, um, Jean-Georges Castner, and he makes this um, assertion, you know, pretty startling for the, for the time, that um, the very noise of a, of a city uh, forms part of its unique character. Um, so uh, he was thinking mostly about music. He was thinking about transcribing and sort of collecting the, the incidental songs that you would hear from street peddlers, from other sources in the city. But, but he, he, he took a step back, and that's why I, I thought it was interesting to um, spend a little time, you know, um, you know, thinking about him, writing about him, to say, you know, that there is some, he didn't use the term, you know, soundscape or in French, paysage sonore, but the, the very noise, noise in the collective general sense. Um, so um, for him, I felt a, a bit more the uh, positive side, the, the aesthetic possibilities of this noise. Um, but he wasn't, he wasn't, he wasn't deaf to the damaging effects as well, to the pollution. And certainly uh, the idea of pollution, you know, light pollution, we have the, um, there was a important study, uh, Disenchanted Night, you know, thinking, I think from um, Wolfgang Schivelbusch um, about light technologies in the 19th century and this disenchantment. So disenchantment with noise as well. Uh, certainly that element there in the in the 19th century which we might identify a bit more with in 20th century trends um but it was there it was you know there were certainly thoughts about that yeah and on on this question of of you know noise in in the city um and in urban spaces modern spaces um it seems like this question of of private like the possibility of private listening kind of how how the city is cha- is transforming listening practices how how one listens can one listen alone um you know anymore i i think the poem that you that you analyze of Baudelaire's is les veuves and it's about a a public kind of concert so um um people that are gathering to listen to to music in in the park um but also this question of 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 listening in the city space comes up in Poe as well and kind of his his fascination and unnerve unnervingness at hearing sounds that he was not intended uh of which he was not in the intended listener um or or the possibility of hearing sounds from I- interior spaces um that are happening you know elsewhere other apartments other other rooms um anyway I'm just curious if you could speak a little bit about how these different authors, and I'm sure with Whitman, there's other parallels as well, um, are representing sound um, to relate notions of of space, public versus private, even social class, um, and what you know what is private in, or can there be private in the same way in, in a modern urban setting? Mm-hmm. 
Right, right. And it's it's funny that the <laughs> the first thing that comes to mind, I think, is a story that I, I didn't write about in this book, but might be more of a touchstone for our listeners out there is um, Kafka's My Neighbor, a very short, you know, short story, probably from uh, early 1920s, maybe, um, specifically about the telephone, but but really speaking directly to these ideas of, of privacy, um, you know, interior and exterior urban space um, and uh, just the anxiety that someone is, is listening on the other side of the wall. Uh, and for Kafka, it's with the telephone. Uh, there are examples of the, of the telephone in, in the 19th century literature, but um, I think um, Poe would certainly be um, an early exemplar of that kind of anxiety that we see you know, later with Kafka, with a story like that, with anxieties about what the neighbor could be hearing, um, the murders in the room morgue, uh, famous, uh, story where, um, there are all these witnesses to this, you know, ghastly murder, um, and they don't know what language they're hearing. Um, maybe I don't want to, <laughs> the spoiler here for, for, for people, but I, I thought that was, um, indicative of how Poe could have taken what was you know, probably at first for a lot of urban dwellers in the 19th century, an unnerving, difficult experience to, to decipher uh, foreign languages or to just different dialects, different accents, uh, suddenly hearing that and hearing it all at once, not being able to make much sense of it. Uh, he uses that as a sort of point of departure for this mystery. Um, so it's... Um, a sense of all these, you know, these witnesses, ear witnesses, I've, I've heard the term, uh, more so than eyewitnesses. So this is a story of, of ear witnesses, the, uh, the murders in the room morgue. Um, so there is like a sense of uh, space being um, deline- delineated, um, articulated in different ways through acoustics. Another example that I, that I really like that I write about towards the end of um, the book in the, in the fifth chapter when I'm writing about Nina de Villar, um, she lived at least for a good part of her life in, you know, call it typical bourgeois apartment building, but was known for these raucous parties, wild, noisy parties, um, and, you know, the most bohemian of salons of, of, of the era. And, um, you know, there was a, a certain, you know, decorum to, you know, people want their sleep, people want their quiet, you know, it, you know, existed today, certainly in apartment buildings. But for her, they were they were uh, committed to this kind of um, dream of um, using that space for uh, an, an artistic salon for musical salon. Uh, and so th- there's a review of, you know, how, you know, having an acoustic piano could be awful in that space for the neighbors. Well, then we'll come back to the neighbors again. I don't know if Kafka wrote about <laughs> an unnerving piano, but, but this was, this was a, uh, at least a maddening piano that, that Nina de Villar, um, had in her apartment. So there's certainly the clash between the, the bourgeois and the bohemian played out acoustic terms, um, in that, in that respect. Um, and that was, that was something I was fascinated to, to look into when I was doing my research into, uh, VR, um, you know, how, how her space was animated acoustically, how that salon sounded, you know, what kinds of ideas we could, we can glean from, from the, te- from the written text about it. Right. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you brought her up um, because this this was a very striking chapter in many ways. It's um, it's the first it's the only chapter that focuses on a woman. Um, so you're 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 kind of taking apart kind of issues of gender um, in this chapter. Um, and your approach was so fascinating because you're showing how important of a figure she was to her time. Um, and, you know, you argue that kind of the soundscape of her salon allows you to recover the sound of the era to some degree, but the way in which you can do that or, or the challenges with doing that, um, were quite substantial because it it took a lot of sleuthing on your part to find these sources. There are no recordings of, you know, any performance of her performances or certainly her salon meetings and very few records of her, of her composition, um, or the, her musical compositions, um, if I understood correctly. So, so how did you go about recovering her sonic um, resonance, if you will, um, and and ev- even even in sometimes reading against or reading 
between the lines of text that were written about her by others. Right. I, I did have to read uh, against, in, in a way, uh, one particular novel that had her, or sort of fictionalized version of her at its center. This was Catul Mendes's the, the House of the Old Woman. The old Woman is actually Nina de Villard's mother. Um, but um, I, I think this was probably the most... Um, detailed or um, the lengthiest, I think, account of her life and her salon, but it's, you know, caricaturized, it's caricatural, um, can't really take it as, you know, historical testimony, but it does capture something of the spirit of her salon. And I was interested in thinking about it in terms of like, okay, this is maybe exaggerated. This is um, mean spirited in, in a lot of ways. Unfortunately, um, she was caricaturized and um, treated harshly by some of the, the people that she uh, that she fed and housed and inspired for, um, for years. Um, but I wanted to look at this book um, thinking about those kinds of questions. What, what could we still hear? You know, there's, we, we don't have recordings, you know, maybe there's something out there. I mean, I would love to find it. I, I doubt it, but um, you know, did they, did they, did they ever get their hands on an Edison, you know, phonograph? Might they have recorded, you know, a concert, her playing the piano? I mean, I would love to hear that. Um, she was a concert pianist, a composer, um, there may be just a handful of compositions where we have the the, the musical notation that there may be, but maybe not even that just testimony that she composed certain um certain songs uh and um and that's it so um i was i was looking through a lot of uh you know fictional accounts um uh, accounts of contemporaries um certainly visual sources as well um there aren't many photographs either, uh, but Manet has a very famous painting of her, the, uh, the woman with the fans. Uh, I believe it's on display in the Orsay. So uh, to our, our listeners out there, you've, you've probably seen Nina de Villard. You've, you've walked through the Musée d'Orsay, um, but you probably didn't know, you know, she had connections to some of the most important artists and writers that we would think of now from, uh, you know, roughly, you know, 18, 1860 to 1880, um, uh, her salon was in some ways the place to be. So um, for me, the challenge was in kind of trying to recover something of that atmosphere, something of the sound of that salon. And I wanted to look, you know, in different different sources, not just musical accounts and things. I mean, I could have gone to... Um, reviews of her concerts, you know, accounts purely of the musical performances. And I had some of that, but I wanted to think also about fiction, how people were thinking about music, the idea, idea of music and the idea of sound, because it was, you know, beyond a, a performance space, it was also an intellectual salon where people were really debating ideas, you know, what, you know, um, where could the science take us uh, as a representation? Um, and I make the claim that she was a real visionary. Uh, something that I'm interested in, in looking into further is um, she uh, she published a review, I think, of um, one of the Impressionist uh, shows in the early 1880s, which featured um, Degas's uh, dancer. Uh, I think it was maybe the first showing. And she said that, you know, the public might hate this now, but, you know, I think this is magnificent. This is something that I've dreamed of, actually, is seeing a kind of representation of modern everyday life like this. And um, ages hence, I think this will be in a museum and it will, have, it will command a kind of respect that it's not getting now. Um, and I, I, I believe she might have written about um, Berta Morisot, uh, Mary Cassatt as well in that review. So that's something I, I want to go and look back at. And her, her, her vision as an art critic, but also she was, you know, she and Charles Crow were, were, were lovers for nearly eight, nine years. And, um, you know, people will think of her as a muse, and I think that's important, but uh, to also look beyond that and think about what kinds of um, ideas, artistic movements were inspired there. What did she inspire as well, and how did she contribute to it? Um, yeah, I thought that was really fascinating. And it's, it's true that, you know, it takes that extra like a way of thinking outside the box sometimes to get at that voice um, um, at, you know, 
voices that are marginalized tr- from traditional source literary sources and written sources, um, including women's voices. So I thought it was really interesting how you went about that chapter. Um, and also kind of this thinking about sound, it, it offers the possibility of thinking about the experience of sound, um, you know, not just as kind of a theoretical framework, but really kind of a, a shared, you talk about the community aspect in the salon itself and music, but also how it's linking to other conversations about technology, science, art, how these are all interconnected. It seems like it really comes together well in that final in, in her salon in that final right, chapter. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's ways of ways of listening. That was that was an ongoing question for me. And for for her salon, I, I made the case it was a kind of um, informal way of listening, or a, a, maybe a particularly bohemian. A mode of listening that was encouraged and, and developed there sort of, um, you know, she had her friends who came to the concert hall, the, the more rigid bourgeois, you know, formal spaces, but also they listened to these songs. They had their own kind of hits in a way, uh, songs that, 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 you know, were, were repeated over and over again, um, sort of th- that encouraged community as, as you say, but also, you know, people were, were sitting on the floor and, you know, or, you know reportedly sitting on the floor, Know, and you know, crouching in the, in the hallway or something, and then you know, a song would come on, and so um, that was intriguing to me. You know how that developed. You know, it was a kind of, um, I mean, have to use a you know theory from from Pierre Bourdieu, a kind of habitus. You know, you know, listening habitus or an informal bohemian habitus of of listening there. So um, I feel like I, I want to look into that more. But that was that was something that I was really intrigued by. Yeah. No, that's, that's really interesting. And so we're, you know, to kind of a concluding question perhaps is returning to the beginning. I wanted to ask you about, um, you know, a little bit about your title, first of all, the Clydophonic, which is very, uh, you know, a, a term that you develop, which is um, really striking and really brings together that audio visual sonic divide that you are breaching in, in your, in your book. Um and also, you know, the book's cover image, because we're talking about these, you know, this historical moment of the 19th century, but you're also evoking kind of the possibilities of sound and noise for the, for the future and, and how, how writers of the past were thinking about the future. Um, and on the image of the book's cover, um, it's um, basically, for those who haven't seen it, it's a, it looks like a room filled with speakers, uh, noise-making devices um, with the Italian... Right, yeah, with the Italian philosopher uh, Luigi uh, uh, Russolo and painter Ugo Piatti. And you talk about how Russolo believed that um, the future belongs to noise. And you quote him by saying, we must ever more enlarge and enrich the domains of sound. Um, So I'm wondering if you could say a few words about how kind of his thinking about the future of sound or the sounds of the future framed your thinking for the book and and, and why you chose it for the... um, for the cover. Yeah. Um, wonderful question. Thank you. I, um, again, strangely what comes to mind, you know, for an Italian futurist and thinking about the future of sound is, uh, what he says about the past. Actually, <laughs> I, I think he makes the claim and that I have this in, I think I have this in the conclusion is, you know, um, ancient life was altogether silent. It was only in the 19th century that noise was born. So he, you know, with, the, you know, whatever we think of his, you know, uh, historical claims, you know, he makes the claim that noise or a certain idea of noise was born in the 19th century, um, 19, 19th, 19th century cities, um, you know, to be, to be more precise and 19th century machinery, industrialization, all of that. Um, and, you know, thinking towards the future, you know, what could be done to harness that as a matter for art, for, for, you know, beyond music, even thinking beyond, um, beyond, I think, uh, noise alone, he's thinking about noise sounds. So it was an interesting blend of terminology. You know, we think, you know, kind of cliche of, you know, one person's, you know, music is another person's noise. One person's noise is another person's music. You know, he's, he's thinking in those ways and going beyond them to like, where can we really blend, um, these sounds or noises into something, something beyond that could be made for, made for art, you know, um, symphony of noises or something like that. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm happy he's, you know, I don't, I don't say a, a whole lot about him, but he was like, um, 
I think, a, um, an intriguing endpoint of sorts for the book with that kind of look towards the past and towards the future, you know, what could be done differently with sounds and noises. Um, also on the cover, as you mentioned, is the, the kaleidophonic. And um, uh, I'm happy, thank you for giving me the opportunity to, to speak about that, because it's, it's something that I, once I had it for the title, I, I really knew that I wanted that to be the title, but I've, I've been thinking about it a lot, want to keep thinking about it. Um, I mean, I, Appropriately enough, I, I chose it in part for the sound of it, you know, collide, I'm finally thinking about collide, um, the collision of sounds, you know, thinking about, um, again, going back to uh, Walter Benjamin, the idea of uh, 19th century shock, specifically urban shock, and just uh, the shock of the new, um, you know, so sound is a kind of collision. Uh, um, collision with the subject, the modern subject in the city. Um, what kind of impact is that? So I'm, I'm looking, you know, very often in the book, you know, that kind of collision as the possibility of recording, preserving sound that might make an imprint and leave a trace somewhere. So kaleidophonic in that sense of, you know, the, the wordplay, um, collision of sounds um, at the same time. And as, as I, as I mentioned earlier, was the, the, the idea of the acoustic daguerreotype. So the collision of sound and image. Um, and uh, one thing I felt I had to negotiate pretty often with this book was the, you know, the kind of thread a line between um, anachronism and teleology. I definitely wanted to think about cinema, but I didn't want to have that constantly on the horizon and say, this is, you know, kaleidophonic is leading towards the cinematic. And this is always proto-cinematic and wanted to try as best as possible to think about these ideas, discourses, inventions as much um, in their own terms, in their own moment. Um, but I was very interested in that kind of collision between sound and image. Um, so something like using photography to imagine what sound recording could be like. Um, acoustic daguerreotype is the idea of what sound recording could be like in the future. Um, briefly on the kaleidophone, I still haven't found one. Actually, <laughs> pictures or some designs. I, I you know, I, I looked through the book again, you know, th just this morning to refresh my own memory. It was um, developed by Charles Wheatstone, an English inventor, in, I think 1827. Um, doesn't really look like the kaleidoscope, but the kaleidoscope was the inspiration. Um, but it's, it's, I mean, just the description of it is very evocative. It's sort of these rods with silvered beads that had light focused on them. And you would get these very intricate designs depending on um, the vibrations of the rods uh, using different things like a, a violin bow um, and um, sort of streams of light um, that could emerge. So it was actually mostly a visual device, but it had, it had a, uh, an acoustic side to it. Sort of the sound was the impetus for, um, these, um, uh, these designs that could emerge from the device. So for me, that would, that was a point of more point of departure sort of, um, um, conceptually for thinking about where sound and image impacted. And, um, I guess to you know to bring it back to Crow, you know he he spent a lot of time thinking about photography. People might think about him more today for his you know almost invention, or you know we could we could give him more than partial maybe full credit for you know inventing sound recording. But he spent so much time working on photography, and the two of them in his writings, both scientific and literary, they intersect. Um, and that was not unique to him. There were other people thinking in terms of. Um, you know, the spectacular, the optical, um, there were separations, sensory separations, but they did come together. And these intersections were really, you know, some of the things that intrigued me most in, in writing this book. Yeah, I and I think it's really one of, you know, the most important, among the most important contributions of your book is really challenging us to think, you know, at those intersections as opposed to, you know, dividing them. Um, as, as you know, disciplines and fields sometimes tend to do. So it was a really fascinating read. Um, and I learned a lot and I really enjoyed it. Um, so thank you so much for your book. Um, and congratulations on its 
freshly minted publication, um, it's the tradition in the podcast to ask about what you're working on next. Um, and it seems like you've evoked a few different possible projects in the works. Um, is there anything you're working on currently that you want to share anything about? With uh, listeners? Yeah, sure. I, um, I do want to spend some more time with, with both Charles Crow and, and Nina de Villard. Um, I've got some articles in the works. Um, uh, another one on uh, Crow's collaborations with uh, Edouard Manet. They were they were close friends for I feel like roughly eight years. Um, there's a little correspondence, not a lot, but um, they did collaborate on a book as well as some photography experiments. So I'm I'm really curious about you know continuing that kind of line of investigation. Um, at the same time, I don't. I'm, I'm interested in maybe a little relief from footnotes and maybe maybe a maybe a novel or a novella could be. Um, I don't know something, something, something involving Balzac. I don't know if I'm going to give any more detail beyond that, but involving Balzac and no footnotes <laughs> might, might be might be a little uh, uh, could be a little nice interlude. We'll we'll see what happens. Stay tuned. <laughs> oh well, I certainly will. That sounds refreshing, and I'm very intrigued. So um, I look forward to hearing more about it. <laughs> Maybe next time, but. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, thank you again, Brett, so much. It was really a pleasure talking with you today. Thanks for joining okay, me on the show. My pleasure. Thank you.